Boom. <laughs> Ooh. No, I say, I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I'd get a taxi back to Manchester. <laughs> the only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country because these players and well play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over, and that's been decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest with you. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And Vitek is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to our feet. What a couple of days it's been for diminutive left footers. Departure of Leo Messi to PSG from Barcelona after 21 years at the club, but more importantly, rising from the ashes, none other than Liverpool's Harvey Elliott, here to justify Liverpool's stinginess in the transfer market, because who would have wanted Grealish, Sancho or Lukaku anyway? Hello and welcome to the Tree at the Back podcast, the first of the new season, fresh from a pre-season break, to sheer and utter madness, and a ball barely even kicked yet. Um, joining me this week to cut through the big transfer stories ahead of the new season, is Simon Kelly and Enda Higgins. How are you, lads? All good, thanks. How's it going? So, Leo Messi's seismic departure from Barcelona following the club's catastrophic financial woes leaves them minus the greatest player of all time and possibly even some of their summer incomings. We'll take a look at just what went wrong with the Spanish Giants, what it means for Messi and what it means for La Liga going forward, with La Liga lowdowns at Rory Barlow a little bit later on. Um, on the Premier League front, it's been a hell of a few days and a ball hasn't even been kicked yet between Harry Kane's absence from Spurs training to Manchester City's blockbuster £100 million signing of Jack Grealish. You've the imminent return of Romelu Lukaku to Chelsea after eight years. And how much do we read into Leicester's Community Shield win over Man City? Can they or anyone else upset the top four apple cart this season? So, lads, all rested for another big season of, of Barclays and other categories of, of football madness. Yeah, looking forward to it. Um, felt football, there was a lot of overkill last season. Um, and then with the Olympics and the Euros, but yeah, uh, good to be back again, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was all footballed out with, with, with everything going on, but I think a week off and you're you're just about ready mm. for the new Premier League. So yeah, definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, I think we were the same after the season and, and before the Euros. You're kind of like, Jesus, finally a little bit of a break and then come to Euros, you're like, oh yes, it's back. <laughs> Yeah, it always drags you back in. Always drags always. you back in. But uh, you know, even um, you know, seeing the fans back at the Euros again and watching preseason, like seeing Old Trafford pretty full for the United Everton game, it it does make it a, a much different spectacle. So I think that was a big part of the exhaustion of it all, as well as the truncated schedule because they were kind of following on from the season before. So mm. it just felt like there was no real preseason or summer break. So it was like two seasons back to back in which. United ended up losing in the last game of both. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty depressing. But, uh, yeah, we're ready to go again and be hurt again. It does have a feeling of um, things starting to get back to normal, especially with Andy, you mentioned the fans coming back to the Euro. Mm-hmm. I think once we start to see fans back at Premier League games, I think, yeah, we're all going to start to feel much better mm-hmm. about the, the global situation anyway. Yeah, even seeing some of the, the friendly games. I mean... Um, I was very tempted to, to slag Bruno Fernandes for his for his knee slide, but I mean, 
um, after scoring a free kick like that, like in, in front of fans, I mean, it's been so long. Like, would you exactly. would you blame him for milking it? I don't, I don't get the slide. I've seen people do backflips in preseason friendlies, like you know, a knee, a knee slide after scoring a free kick. Yeah. You know, considering our set piece record, I mean, Jesus, I was knee sliding after it. So mm. absolutely, yeah, yeah, go Bruno. Yeah, even seen like some of the Liverpool players who haven't played in front of fans yet at Anfield. Um, it uh, it does make the it does kind of give the feeling that uh, things are slowly but surely getting back to normal. Um, I suppose on the transfer front, things haven't changed at Manchester City. I mean, there's <laughs> there's, there's no um, there's no uh, financial restrictions there by any means. Yeah. Um, talk Poor of Pep looking under the couch again, yeah, for some change, yeah, some change yeah, as usual. <laughs> Um, news of Grealish, obviously, and, and there was murmurs of, of Harry Kane going in the same direction. But uh, I, I will we'll leave Kane for to a side for one second. But I'd be interested to get your reaction to Grealish. Um, hundred million pounds. I mean, he's his reputation has been so enhanced over the past twelve months or so. I mean, he's obviously been a fantastic player, but I don't think anyone has kind of really appreciated how good he has been for Villa um, over the last five or six years. Um, went into the Euros then, and obviously. He, he he kind of turned into like this this everyone wanted him on he he kind of, kind of this poster boy for for this this Brexit England if you want to call it that um, I mean everyone was calling for his name at 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 some point but he's off to Man City now I'm hundred million pounds um it'd be interesting to hear uh, what you thought of that one yeah it's funny like you said he's he's his reputation was enhanced by not playing. You know, he he ditches Ireland and then he becomes the English sort of <laughs> Wes Houlihan, Stephen McPhail, Andy Reid type of character. You know, um, but I still haven't, <clears throat> excuse me, fully gotten my head around possibly the most needless one hundred million pound signing in the history of football in terms of the profile of player. Uh, he's an absolutely sensational player, but it just feels like Pep saying, you know give me a new Barclays toy to play with, Grealish, that'll do. And it happened, you know. It's just, I mean, even seeing his debut on Saturday afternoon, he was picking up the ball and, and trying to run at players in the exact positions that De Bruyne will try and do when he's back, that even Zinchenko likes to do. And and now Bernardo Silva wants to leave. It all just feels very weird. And, and what does Phil Foden feel like at the moment? I mean, surely this is his time now. I know he's played kind of false nine and on the wing for both England and Man City. But if you're to ask him his favourite position, it would be exactly where Grealish would want to play. So I just can't make any sense of it at all. Um, and then the pressure of going from being the main man at Villa to being, you know, somebody that all these English fans are clamouring for. And then all of a sudden, you know, all these opposition fans as Kyle Walker through tears, pointed out on Twitter, God, why would you boo Jack Grealish? You don't even know him. But that's what happens when you leave your boyhood club and go to Man City for £100 million. So he has to deal with all of that now. And, you know, even if you look at the kind of 20 or 30 minute <clears throat> highlight package, a lot of the time he was trying to dribble past four or five players, which he was able to do successfully at Villa, but the space was there for him to do that. Whereas against a low block, const- constantly week after week against teams and playing with a team who aren't used to his his style of play. Um, I just, my mind is blown, really, that, you know, this has transpired. And, and you know, the fee is the least surprising part of this. But everything else, I, I just can't really make full sense of it, considering what City really need, which is a number nine, um, and the type of players that they have in that position already. I mean, if you'd said two or three years ago that they'd lose Bernardo Silva... 
because they'd brought in Jack Grealish, you would have said that's crazy because at that time, you know, Bernardo just looked the perfect Pep player to sort of carry the David Silva mantle of, you know, being so calm on the ball, being kind of almost deceivingly quick, being able to score goals. And now they're losing that all because of this transfer and all because of Pep's treatment of him as well in that position. So I don't really see any upgrade in this for City, if that makes sense, which is bizarre, really, because, I mean, I love Grealish. I mean, if, if he'd come to United, it, it would have been a phenomenal signing, but just the profile and, you know, what City have at the moment, I, I just can't make sense of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm in a similar vein. It, it, it's all got a very cold edge to the whole thing. I mean, you have this guy who, who played for his boyhood club and there was such a romance around it. And then all of a sudden, you know, Pep Guardiola just picks him up and puts him in a city shirt. And, and yeah, it just, it's very hard to get excited about these type of signings. Uh, as Enda said, I, I agree, like Grealish is a fantastic player, but he's, he's one of those old school players that doesn't really play by the, play by the rules. And it's hard to see anything but Pep kind of ironing that stuff out of his game and, and making this kind of cold machine that just passes the ball endlessly and, and doesn't go on his kind of crazy runs into the boxes um, anymore. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think he, he's definitely not the player that Man City need at the moment. And it just has a, a very kind of um, cold feel to the whole thing. Yeah, I think if, if it was Harry Kane going to City I think you could pretty much hand over the title now it's the, it's that kind of transfer it's a player in a position that they need to fill um, whereas Grealish it doesn't feel like the tick the ticker has moved a whole pile in terms of the title race I mean you still wouldn't rule out United or Liverpool or Chelsea um, in terms of kind of pushing City all the way um, unlike you know what Kane would have added so it does feel that you know Obviously, he's a fantastic player to add, but he's not necessarily what they needed at this point. Yeah, and like I think you you could even look at the at Grealish signing and look to the other players in that Man City squad and what they must be thinking, like like Foden and and um, and Sterling on the left there. I mean, if anything, it, it just kind of unsettles the squad even more so at the start of the season because you have these players that have had you know brilliant seasons um, and and brilliant Euros as well coming off the back of that and now they're they're seeing this new new guy coming in and, and saying well, well what about us I mean didn't we just prove your, prove ourselves to you so yeah if anything it kind of unsettles the squad a bit um and it just seems to be you know adding adding to the wealth of that club and and it's just he's just not a player that they need right now on the other side in 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 terms of Villa I mean I follow a lot of Aston Villa fans on Twitter um a huge, a huge proportion of them for some reason. But you know, watching the reaction first of all to the kind of the transfer rumors that were happening over the course of the few weeks before it actually went through, and the the range of emotions, you know, from like Jesus, you know, what a traitor, you know, moving on from his boyhood club, you know, kind of anger. All these emotions were going through <laughs> yeah. like his Twitter stages of um, grief. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like you, you'd swear like that a big player hasn't left um, a, a kind of a you know, quote unquote, smaller club for a bigger club before. Like it's, it's, it's you swear it had been unheard of. But I mean, I'm looking at Villa now who've moved on from Grealish and obviously they're quite well off before losing them. I mean, the £100 million is is a nice kitty and they've already added pretty well to that. But I mean, now they've, they have a huge funding behind them and now they're in a position where they can 
build a squad of players that can compete like say for example Leicester you know they can add here and there they've already added Buendia Ings Bailey I mean three fantastic players and for me I think this could be a good thing for Villa going forward I'm not, I'd be interested to hear what you think yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, as they've gone out and signed the best midfielder in the championship, probably the best player in the championship. Who I can't believe all those Premier League clubs saw what Buendia could do in the Premier League with Norwich and said, "Yeah, just leave him in the championship for another year and see what happens." Then they've signed probably the most underrated right winger in Europe in Leon Bailey. Um, you know, the second best English striker in the Premier League, maybe even the second best number nine in the Premier League after Harry Kane. Um, now that Aguero's gone. You know, and even bringing back Ashley Young, who, you know, had a fantastic 18 months at Inter Milan and, you know, was a huge player for Antonio Conte um, in terms of the options that he gave him at left wing back. Um, and, they, you know, the crosses he was able to provide for Lukaku. I know Villa don't really play like that, but still having him back and around and that level of experience and just to be able to kind of guide Villa through their emotional torment <laughs> of losing Grealish. So I think they've had a fantastic summer um, for me. Um, they've probably had as good a summer as they had last season, which I thought would be impossible. And again, to Anzabi on loan, which, you know, if he can repeat the form he showed for Villa in the championship, which was one of the main reasons um, they actually got to the playoff finals, um, his partnership with Mings. So, I mean, they've ticked all the boxes really. And, you know, they let Grealish off without any real drama as well. Once the bid came in, they said, thanks very much, that'll do. And off he went. So I don't think Villa fans, obviously, they look up to Grealish a lot, but they've also seen sides being able to shut Villa down by, you know, taking him out of the game. Um, and when he was out injured for Villa um, in the past couple of seasons, there were times where they did have to adjust. Um, and over time, they started to do that successfully and, and sort of that pressure was released from Grealish. And then when he did come back, obviously, he was able to just, you know, really shine. And, you know, as Connor said, which is very relevant, he's a very kind of, you know, street footballer. He doesn't really you know, play by these rigid formations that Pep will demand from him, which suited Villa perfectly. Um, and the players that they've brought in can really add to that. So I think it'll be really exciting to see Aston Villa this season. And I think they were, you know, definitely um, a good shout to make Europa League places. Yeah, I'm, I'm of the same mind. I think that this can only be a good thing for, for Villa, especially with their their chairman came out um, and and gave a message to the fans and was very mm. kind of transparent and clear about their plan going forward. And, and the fact that they put so much thought and effort into the, into the signings um, of the, of the players that they got in before they handed over Grealish to, to city, it was all done in a really well thought out manner. And if I suppose if you're a Villa fan, it's hard to argue with, with that sort of, um, of mentality because, I think we we're all aware that this day was was going to come. Grealish was never going to stay at Villa for his entire career. It's it's extremely rare for a player to do that, and he he almost reached a level, especially after the Euros, of not not that he's bigger than the club. I don't think any player is bigger than the club, but this kind of level of unattainability, and you kind of have to just let them go at that point and say, okay, let's let's get as much money as we can from this guy, reinvest into the squad and see where we go from here. And they've done really, really well with, with their incoming signings. And yeah, I think I think they're at a level now where they can they can comfortably sit within the top ten of the Premier League. And I suppose if you're a Villa fan, um looking at that a couple of years ago, you would have bit someone's hand off for it. So 
yeah, I, th- I think that I think that they're they're in a really good position. It's the right time for him to go. Obviously, there's going to be some some hard feelings there because he's such an important figure at the club. But this happens to to every club, really. You know, there's always that star guy that just ends up yeah. wanting to move on. Yeah, and I think it shows how well run they are that they're able to bring in Danny Ings literally 10 minutes before anybody knew anything about it, which in this day and age is <laughs> is a miracle, you know. With uh, you know, if, if he'd been linked with United, which he was, you'd have Woodward camping outside for three months, you know, drip-feeding the media, you know what I mean? So there's a very kind of no-nonsense approach to Villa and how they go about transfers. I don't think anything ever really gets dragged out. Um, and even the swiftness with the Grealish transfer. Um, so, you know, they've made huge strides since coming back into the Premier League. Uh, losing John Terry doesn't feel like a bad thing either, to be honest, um, PR-wise. So um, it's kind of all coming up trumps, I feel, for them. Um, and they've been a really, really impressive football club in the last two to three years and pretty much almost everything they've done, even after losing the championship playoff to Fulham. Um, it would have been easy to just kind of drift back into the pack, but they just kept their heads, went again the next season, got back into the Premier League, um, made smart signings, even the likes of Traore and Moral Ghazi. Maybe not, you know, top half Premier League type players, but good enough to improve the overall team without, you know, costing the type of money that Fulham forked out for Premier League players. So again, everything is impressive about Villa across the board. And, and like I said earlier, I'm, I'm looking forward to them having a really good season. And I'm delighted to Enzo has gone back there from a selfish perspective, because I think it would be a, a great place for him to uh, hopefully get some game time. Yeah, as a Liverpool fan, we do have a, a questionable history with Christian Perslow, but uh, his, his, his interview or, or his, his video message was, was very matter of fact. And the fact that they followed that up with Danny Ings signing without any... Any transfer rumor nonsense at all kind of usually points towards a, a well-run club. So, uh, in fairness to Villa, I think I think they'll be just fine without Grealish. Um, Simon, were you were you going through similar stages of grief when when Harry Kane didn't show up for training that Monday morning? <laughs> I don't know if you could call it grief, but it was certainly unexpected. I mean, there seemed to be. I mean, we were just talking about there how how well-run a club Villa were with their communications. I mean, it's been an absolute PR disaster. At, at, um, at Tottenham at the moment because there was such a massive air of confusion about what was going on. He was expected to to come back to training on the Monday. Um, reports started to, to trickle out then early morning that he didn't show up and that he doesn't plan to show up. And then, you know, it, it came out that he was still basically on holidays. He was in Florida. So, um, the <laughs> yeah, there, there was... Kind of a, a silence then from the club. Um, there was no statement or anything. It was just kind of trickled out through the media, through the you know the the kind of more reputable journalists. They were just saying that this is his plan now. He he wants to put a mark down and say I, I want to go to City. Um, everything's in place, and this whole gentleman's agreement started to come up again. But um, yeah. So it it was a, it was a really really strange one. And then obviously he came out a couple of days later with the. With the um with the statement saying that he he'd never skip training, you know, it was always the plan to come back on Saturday and not Monday, and it all seemed like a bit of a, a disaster on his end, uh, because as we all know now that his his agent is his brother Charlie and seems to be a bit out of his depth with with the kind <laughs> of information that he's feeding his brother Harry. So, um, yeah, I think that the whole situation has made it worse for Kane and probably better for Tottenham. But I don't think the club helped itself in in the way they handled it and kept quiet on the situation. 
the reports that came out, it it did seem very uncane like and kind of like a, a very strange move if he did boycott training, um, as was reported at the time, um, considering there was rumours of Grealish moving to City, um, and like the like likelihood of City following up Grealish with Kane seemed a little bit of a stretch. Um, obviously they're not short of a few bob, but signing both in one transfer window seemed um, a little bit beyond them for me anyway. So it kind of felt like if, you know, this suggestion was true, that it was kind of making Kane's position at Spurs pretty untenable. But I'm sure, I mean, they have City this weekend coming up. He'll probably start. He will be involved in some in some shape or form. Like, it does feel like things will have to be put under the bed pretty quickly. Yeah, I think, I think that, like, I mean... Nuno has has come out now and, and said that Kane is is available for selection uh, for the city game. It it was kind of agreed uh, amongst people that 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 wasn't going to be the case, but but it turns out it is now, and it, it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out from now. Because if you're Harry Kane at this moment in time and you're seeing City sign Jack, Jack Grealish for a hundred million, you know, before you, I mean, you're going to have to start questioning City and not Tottenham because. If City were really interested and really, really wanted to get Harry Kane, they would have put in an offer that was that was worthy of his of his sale. I mean, Daniel Levy came out at the start of the the kind of the transfer window and, and basically put a price tag down of 150, 160 million. Um, City bid 100 million, I think, at the start of July, and there was radio silence since then on their part. Obviously, Pep has come out. Um, at a city press conference and being fairly vocal about how he wants, how much he wants Harry Kane and how much of a brilliant player he is, which is, um, for me, it leaves a bit of a bad taste in the mouth. I, I don't think managers should be that vocal about players that they're chasing, but Pep has a a bit of a track record in doing that. Um, so yeah, I think there has also been rumours today. I've heard from, um, you know, a, a journalist that's 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 a fairly reputable source. He he says that there's even talk of Harry Kane is not against signing a new contract at Tottenham at the moment. So there's a lot of things up in the air for Harry Kane at the moment. And hopefully all will become clear for him before the start of the season. But I can see this dragging out until the until the last day of the transfer window. Yeah, I think it's a it's a bit of disaster for Kane, really. Um, you know, and, and you made a very relevant point about his brother being out of his depth, <laughs> which I think is a very pertinent point um there's also the other issue which isn't going in Kane's favor now that Grealish assigned is that Pep um crying the poor mouth and you know despising the reputation of being a checkbook manager <laughs> now realizes he has to fork out 150 million if he wants to buy him and it just doesn't feel like from all his comments of we had to raise 60 million from sales uh you know selling youth players or whatever shit he said um like it doesn't sound like a guy who's ready to really go negotiating with daniel levy for his best player and his captain so you know i think that statement on i think it was the friday night uh, which would have been sort of four or five days after he didn't turn up for training um and even you know there, there was also talks oh he, he, he was quarantining for covid and then oh no he was actually on holiday so even how they managed that week was just a disaster for um, the player, um, and it's put him completely at the back foot now with the fans, with you know his fellow teammates, uh, his new manager, Levy. Um, well, Levy might be enjoying the situation, but everybody else, I think, will be pretty miserable around Tottenham thinking about it. Um, and you know, we're going to talk Messi later and how he overshadows uh, 
Barcelona players, there is that kind of element now with Harry Kane. Uh, we even saw with England, he's trying to play that way that he does with Spurs now, where he, he drops deeper and deeper to almost try to become the playmaker. Um, and it didn't really suit England in the summer. It didn't suit Kane. Um, it works for Spurs because obviously, you know, players understand that now. So the likes of Son are able to make the runs in behind when Kane does drop deep. But again, I don't think that would really suit City at the moment either. Um, so I think, you know, new contract and all that kind of stuff is probably more likely than him leaving. Yeah, and like it's 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 interesting now with, with Nuno at the helm, I think that there is a... I, I suppose there's a question of how Harry Kane is going to fit into that team because obviously under Mourinho, he had this almost quarterback role, kind of like a free role where he could run in behind the in behind the defense and kind of work as a as a as an assister and a goal scorer. With Nuno, I think that the the system is going to be much more rigid. He's looking to get in another striker. There's there's rumors of Lautaro Martinez from Inter, depending on their financial situation. I don't know how. Um, how that how that's going to come through, but yeah, I mean everything is up in the air for Harry Kane at the moment, and he's only damaging his reputation in in kind of refusing first of all to 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 come to Spurs at the right time, or to even double check whether he should be back on on a Monday or a Saturday. These things they always happen for a reason, and um, it's it's bad communication on his part. So yeah, yeah, I suppose we just have to wait and see on this one. Simon, you mentioned Slatero Martinez there. I mean, if they do keep Kane and manage to add him, as well as Brian Gill, I mean Christian Romero as well, that sounds like a pretty decent transfer window to me. For a, if you're a Spurs fan, yeah, it's um, it kind of came out of nowhere as well. Uh, it's all basically down to to the new director of football, um, Fabio Paratici, who came in from Juventus, and. I think he came in just before the whole shambles with the with the manager search um, was mm-hmm. happening. So he kind of came in under the radar. There wasn't that much expectation about him. But one thing was for sure is that Tottenham needed someone like him. They needed a director of football and they needed Daniel Levy to step away from transfer dealings because he just he's the type of chairman that is too involved and doesn't really have the capabilities to to negotiate um player incomings whatever said about player sales he's, he's brilliant at that but but getting players in is where he struggles and that is something that uh, a person like Paratici has has excelled at Juventus and yeah so 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 he he he's a type of guy who who seems to deal with with a lot of different players at, at, at different times so amongst the kind of Tottenham transfer rumors there, there's a different player on the books every every single day, um, and and players like Brian Heal, who who came in from Sevilla as part of a a trade with um, Eric Lamella, that came out of absolutely nowhere. It was announced, yeah. I think it was announced on on a, say on a Monday, and, and and by the Tuesday or Tuesday or Wednesday, it was it was happening. It, there was a here we go from Fabrizio Romano, and and he he was all Classic. of a sudden a Tottenham player. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's. This season for Spurs fans, I suppose there wasn't much expectation because Nuno wasn't the manager that Spurs fans wanted. But I think now there's a quiet optimism because we've got in players like Heal, we've got in players like Christian Romero, who looks like a, a fantastic boy. I mean, he was the, the, the Serie A defender of the of the year last season, which is no mean feat when you look at the defenders that, that's in that league. 
he was uh, world class in the Copa America with Argentina winning and really, really wanted to come to Spurs. So I think that Spurs are going to have a, they're going to have a better season than people think. They, they, what they need to do now is to just try and push themselves back into the top six, maybe the top four, although that's probably too much of an ask for this season. But I think there is a quiet air of optimism and, and a, a growing expectation at Tottenham that mm. it might not be as long um, before we see them back in the top four. In the on the Chelsea front then, I mean we we were talking about Kane there as uh if he did go to City then that would kind of pretty much seal the deal on on a Premier League title more likely. Um but Chelsea, I mean, are generally regarded as the, the next best to City. I mean, pretty star studded squad. They've strength and depth in, in most positions. They've, you know, a handful of the best young players in the league in, in terms of Hazard or Havertz and Mount um, and Pulisic. Um, what would you think about adding Romelu Lukaku into the mix there uh, eight years after he, he departed? I don't know if this is the United fan kicking in here, but my views to Lukaku are not too dissimilar to my views on Grealish joining City. Um, not for the same reasons, but um, if you look at the type of players who have excelled under Tuchel at Dortmund, PSG, and, and even at Chelsea, um, you know, Chilwell, James, Havertz, Werner, no, um, <laughs> Jorginho, yes, Kovacic a bit, yes. They're the most technical players in that squad. That's exactly how Thomas Tuchel likes to build a team. Um, he built a wonderfully technical kind of front three or front four, four at Dortmund with Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan, Roy Stembele. Um and then you look at the success Lukaku has had in the last two years and it was down to, you know, his pace has improved, he's lost weight since United and, you know, he's far more direct. But it was still pretty brute stuff from Conte in terms of this three-five-two and just relentless sort of crosses. Um, even even the midfield three like Barella constantly found themselves in winger positions just to feed Lukaku cross after cross after cross. Kolarov was brought in, Ashley Young was brought in. Hakimi was brought in. It's it's no coincidence that those are, you know, some of the best crossers in Europe, all to feed Lukaku. And then you look at how, and then he had, of course, Martinez to play off him as an incredible foil, you know, to do the running, to do the work, to drop deeper, um, so that Lukaku was your sort of traditional number nine, but still always having that partner close to him that he didn't really have at United when he was more of a, a lone striker with Mourinho trying to kind of fill in for that Zlatan void that he had in his first season of success. And you look at the Chelsea squad as it is now, and, and it doesn't overly suit Lukaku at the moment, in my opinion, um, in terms of, you know, who's going to play the Lotaro Martinez role. Havertz isn't really that type of workhorse that Martinez is. He's technically very good, and he did improve under Tuchel, but still has a lot to learn. Werner's probably going to just not play at all. Tammy Abraham could have been that type of player, actually, with his pace, but he's off to Syria. Um, so unless Tuchel can somehow replicate the Inter 3-5-2 that Conte, you know, has perfected at Juventus and then at Inter for Lukaku, I don't think he'll pull up the type of numbers that people saw in Syria. Um, and also the quality in Syria defending has quietly dipped in the past sort of three or four years. Uh, even though Romero, who Conor mentioned earlier, is a sensational buy, I think, for, for Tottenham Hotspur. But, 
you know, Benucci's not been himself really since returning from AC Milan, even though he had a great Euros. Chiellini is still, you know, chugging along. I don't think Delit has been as impressive as as people had, have hoped. So it was a kind of a perfect storm, really, for Lukaku at Inter with the type of manager he had, the type of players that were around him. And Chelsea somehow need to recreate that again. And I, I'm not sure Tuchel um, will kind of make everything about Lukaku in the same way Conte did. And I don't mean that, you know, facetiously. I just mean it tactically. Um, so it will be interesting to see. I'm, I'm curious to see how he goes in the Premier League again. I th- do think he has something to prove. I don't think his failings at United were all his fault. There was that kind of undiagnosed stomach sort of illness that he, he apparently had that was figured out by Inter doctors. And that's... That's why he had the weight issues. But, you know, it just didn't seem like a good fit for United for potentially the same reasons that it mightn't be a great fit for Chelsea. But I'm certainly intrigued to see how Tuchel goes about kind of replicating that into form because it would lead to a complete change in style for what Chelsea produced at the end of last season, which won them a Champions League. And it's pretty hard to walk away from Havertz as your false nine and Jorginho and Kovacic dominating a midfield. Um to all of a sudden making everything back to being about Lukaku again, which is really what he needs in order to produce those numbers. I'm I'm quite um I'm quite excited to see Lukaku in in the Premier League once again because I think that I think yeah, and as you were saying, you know, he, he had his his misgivings at United and, and there were a lot of problems there at the club at the time. And I think that when you look at his time at Inter compared to his time in other clubs when when he arrived at inter he was he started to become the main man he wasn't vying for that for that place like he was at other clubs before him and and he got that confidence and that reliability that he he probably didn't have before and he he made a massive difference to that club and i think he you know without lukaku at inter he wouldn't they wouldn't have won the won, won the league so i think that he he definitely has a lot to prove coming back to the to the Premier League, but I think under a manager like Tuchel, who clearly wants the player, um, I'm really fascinated to, to see what he can do with him. And yeah, I think there are going to be issues in terms of the style of play and how that suits Lukaku. But I do think that this is a much more well-rounded Lukaku than we've seen before, and um, someone who can change their game a bit more. Than they used to, and um, yeah, I'm I'm excited to see him. Yeah, the only interesting thing I'd be interested to see if he can do in the Premier League would be, you know, a goal that stand, stands out for me as probably his best in Serie A was uh, away to Napoli in the first season, um, where he got the ball, I'd say, deep inside his own half and basically ran the whole end of the pitch, leaving Napoli for absolute dead. And we just didn't see that level of pace at United for various reasons, and he was able to find that again at Inter. So I think that could well be the biggest difference between the sort of United Lukaku and now the Chelsea Lukaku that um, we're about to see. Um, so, you know, I'm not criticizing the guy or I'm not criticizing Chelsea for signing him. I just have a few concerns because Inter were so tactically perfectly set up for him and to, to constantly recreate that at, at other clubs is, is very difficult. Um, but you probably have the most tactically astute manager in the league after Pep in Tuchel, so um, that's potentially why it is a great fit. And he's already talking up Lukaku as, you know, the best number nine in the world in, in his latest press conference. So, you know, obviously he needs that level of trust in a manager as well. Um, so it will be interesting to see how it goes. 
and we've got this far into uh, into this particular podcast and yep. the whole summer without mentioning um, the Central to, to, to United. <laughs> I mean, we did have we did have the distraction of the Euros. In fairness, to, uh, absolutely. But so um, Fishman caught my attention more than Sancho at the time. <laughs> I do apologise for any rant uh, I did against Rabiot or his mother. I hope they can forgive me. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they have at this point, but. Um, uh, what are you? What are you expecting? What are you hoping to see out of United this uh, this season? Um, well, if they can reproduce that first thirty five minutes against Everton on Saturday, that would be a very fun United side to watch. But um, overall, there's there's a slight concern over how the summer has gone in terms of they got Sancho and and Varane wrapped up fairly quickly, and yet one only started training yesterday, the other still in quarantine, which is just sums United up really under Woodward, you know what I mean? Even when we're efficient, we're horribly inefficient. Um, and Cavani's still riding horses in Uruguay. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I watched a preseason friendly two weeks ago, Bayern against Napoli, and Bayern had Lewandowski starting, Nabri, Sané. Kimmich, Napoli had, you know, their their best three, four, five players. And it seems like somehow United have just drifted through this preseason with nobody being around. And we're three days or four days away from facing the fittest team in the league. So that's a huge concern. But um, I'm excited for Ali that he's gotten two players that he desperately needed. I mean, he's been chasing Sancho. Apparently he mentioned Sancho in his very first meeting with United before he got the the caretaker role so he's the one he's wanted all along um i have concerns slightly about how sancho plays in terms of what i think united need from a right winger which is somebody very um how do i say it? disciplined he needs to stay on the right wing because you don't get that from wambasaka that that forward threat and sancho actually chases the play he became that kind of playmaker at dortmund he would be central he'd be left he'd be right he was just always close to Haaland so that they could connect so i think united will still lose a lot of the width that they're hoping sancho will provide if he does play the same way at dortmund so i wouldn't be overly surprised to see him actually play left hand side and for greenwood to stay right hand side um with Cavani as the number nine I, I think Greenwood stays out and, and is gives United more options on the right hand side mm. which seems bizarre really because we've been searching for a right winger for you know pretty much a decade um since Antonio Valencia broke his leg and now we finally have one and he'll probably play left hand side because Rashford is injured but um I don't think you can leave Greenwood out of the front three at the moment with the form he's shown in pre-season um and then Varane obviously uh is a very exciting prospect beside Maguire who looks as fit and lean as he ever has in his career was excellent against Everton on Saturday was excellent at the Euros for England and I think he's ready to kind of step up a level now which is what United really require from him um so if they can get through those first two or three weeks and avoid that horror start that unfortunately they had in the last two or three seasons I think they'll go okay but you know, it probably needs to be a transfer window where three or four players came in and it'll probably just be the two when you hear things like they're impressed with Dallow in training, they're impressed with Van der Beek's physique, you know, <laughs> these type of things. I've been a United fan long enough to know what those things actually mean, which is, you know, enjoy the squad you have now because that's the way it'll be, um, which, which is fine, which is fine. I think it's probably the most balanced squad we've had in a very long time anyway, but not having a defensive midfielder to tie the whole thing together still leaves United very vulnerable. Um, and then obviously a, a right back 
backup option to AWB, which Trippier would have been absolutely perfect for us, especially against a low block with his quality of delivery. I think he would have been a great foil for Cavani, for example. So there's things I can still, you know, find issues with, but I'm excited ahead of the new season. I think everybody looked really sharp in the Everton game in particular. Um, so we'll see how they go, but I, I think um, it'll probably just be a scrap for third and maybe second if we're lucky. Um, we don't have Phil on for his uh, Liverpool perspective, um, so I'm not I, I'm not 100% sure is he... Is he Leaning positive or negative um, towards the end of last season, he was a little bit negative, wasn't he? So maybe he was, but I, I got a positive vibe off him the summer there. Yeah, yeah. I think he, I think he's had a nice break, um, but I mean, from a Liverpool point of view, just to I suppose echo a lot of what you said there. I think we've gone through um, a lot of the stages of as being a Liverpool fan in a summer where there hasn't been a lot of transfer activity. Um, you've had the 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 player who hasn't really kind of found his form in terms of Chamberlain um, you know being say, suggested as a possible Firmino uh, replacement we've had you know the lone returnee being hyped up in terms of Minamino um, we've had the um, I suppose you know the underwhelming player over the past couple of years being hyped up in terms of Keita uh, you've had another loanee returnee um, Harvey Ellis has been the, the new signing in, in, in inverted commas um, I mean, like it's hard to know where Liverpool are at. Um, obviously, the return of of Van Dijk and Gomez is is absolutely monumental to to the defence. Um, because it probably means Fabinho or Henderson won't be playing in, in centre back, which is a, a a little bit of a bonus. Um, you'd like to think the likes of Thiago will, will find a little bit of form. Um, he did f- seem to feel a little bit more comfortable towards the end of last season, but. I mean, in terms of the transfer activity, we're probably looking at, you know, not a whole pile of change, a team that's been very settled over the past couple of years. It will be impacted by the African Cup of Nations. Um, if that goes ahead, you'd imagine at this point it will. Um, so like, I'm, I'm, my expectations are very, very tame going into this year. I do, I do have a lot of concern over how not necessarily stale this team could become but I would have liked a little bit of change particularly in the midfield um, seeing Wijnaldum go um, and there is kind of uh, a little bit of a murmur that they could still be in for someone um, before the end of the transfer window probably dragging their heels in terms of you know wanting to pull the trigger on on too much of an expensive signing but um, I think Probably speaking for Phil, he can't he can't defend himself. But I think I think expectations are very very tame for Liverpool this year. Yeah, I mean, I, I we did talk about him last year at Blackburn. I mean, I I am excited to to see how Elliot goes this year. Yeah. I think Klopp definitely sees him as somebody who can you know become one of his you know Fabinho, Wijnaldum type stalwarts in midfield. Um, I know he's technically a more attacking mid, but so was Wijnaldum when he joined. But Elliot seems to have all the similar characteristics um, and and could easily be turned into that kind of deeper box-to-box midfielder that Wijnaldum became. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think Liverpool will really, really struggle initially anyways with no Wijnaldum there. I feel him and Fabinho just tied the whole thing together and then it allowed kind of Henderson and um, Milner to kind of rotate with each other. Um, but Liverpool, they just gave the back four who like to play a high line, so much protection. So when Robertson or 
Trent, as people like to say, uh, were caught high up the pitch. They filled in those roles brilliantly. And I think suddenly transitioning to that, even though Minamino's look good in preseason, even though Elliot could become that player, I think it, you know Liverpool could lose a lot of ground early on. Uh, although Jota looks really sharp in the front three, I think Firmino's days as a starter are completely numbered now, um, if Jota stays fit. Um, but even Salah and Mane, you know, for two guys who have played 50, 60 games a season for the last four or five years in their late 20s now, um, you know, have hectic schedules internationally as well with the travel they have to do. I'd be slightly concerned that they'll run out of gas as well, which kind of seemed to be happening more and more um, in games where Liverpool weren't finishing as strongly as we're used to. So to not bring in kind of a wild card um, and then potentially losing Shakiri, who actually was quite, I always felt underrated in terms of the role he was able to do when he came in. You think of, you know, his performance against Barcelona in the second leg in the semi-final, for example, you know, having a player being able to come in and do that is not easy to find, um, especially at the prices Liverpool are only willing to pay at the moment. Um, so the squad depth could be an issue and Van Dijk, you know, how will he fully recover? Like He hasn't looked overly sharp in pre-season, which, you know, sounds harsh, but because he set such a high bar before his injury, you're always going to be looking at, you know, the level he's at now. Um, and then trying to keep keep Gomez fit and Kuwati, as we said last season, his injury record isn't great. So there's a lot of question marks I feel over Liverpool and probably too many that they'd like to be having going into a new season, which is probably why you're slightly concerned, I'd imagine. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd feel similar. I think that, um, Kevin, as you mentioned, you know, it's not really a matter of, of, of staleness, but like I would be slightly concerned that they're they're very quiet in the in the transfer market and and their kind of apparent mismanagement of of the Wijnaldum sale and, and not really finding a replacement quickly enough. I mean, Liverpool tend to be quiet enough in the transfer window as it is, but I think yeah. this year especially was kind of maybe an opportunity to refresh the squad more than they than they would in other seasons. And we saw obviously last season we were all having the same conversations. You know, do Liverpool look stale? Is a, a bit of inertia going to set in, and they kind of they kind of um, turned that back in our face towards the end of the season and, and, and did fantastic. But I do think that there is, um, I suppose, uh, a doubts and, and concerns over whether um, you know even Klopp is 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 up to the challenge again. Obviously, we saw last season he, he went through he went through hell and back, um, both professionally and personally. So. It'll be really interesting to see how they start the season. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm similar in the fact that I, I would have concerns about if they don't start well and if, if things don't go well for them, um, then yeah, it, it, the, those questions that came up last season will come up again quite quickly. Mm. We've ticked off um, a lot of the bigger teams. Is there any other teams around the league who are kind of tickling your fancy for for good or indeed bad reasons going forward? I'm really interested in um, in Brentford. I think that um, Brentford are coming up with with a manager that's that's really exciting in, in Thomas Frank, and I think that they're of the same mind. They're kind of looking to they're looking at teams like Leeds, um, and following the same trajectory, and and they want to do something like like they've done in seasons before them, and they have a really really exciting squad. They play brilliant football. And, um, you know, if you look at players like Ivan Tony, who's got a, 
he's got a lot to to prove in the Premier League. Obviously, not not making it in Newcastle, uh, that's a bit of a chip on his shoulder. But I think he looks a real Premier League striker, um, if anyone does. And uh, I'm really excited to see them. Just it's not solely on the fact that I really want to see Thomas Frank's um, interviews week in week out, but <laughs> um, I, I think they look they look uh, really good, and hopefully they can they they just about have enough to keep up. Um, it's going to be really tough at the bottom, I think, this season. But they look like, out of the three teams that went up, I think they look more Premier League ready despite finishing um, below the other two. Yeah, I'd agree. They kind of replaced Leeds after they left the Championship, really, of being that Championship team you wanted to watch every week. Um, you know, and what came with that sometimes was, you know, they would run out of gas and they would kind of make mistakes. But, you know, the quality of striker they've been able to reproduce season after season as Connor mentioned Tony but you know before it was Watkins you know and it's just constant this churning out of being able to find goals um, and that kind of makes me worry about Southampton really I mean the only three strikers in their squad at the moment are Long um, Obafemi and Shea Adams and there's not really a lot of goals in those three at the moment um, Shane Long's probably past his sell by date at this stage Obafemi hopefully from an Irish perspective gets a lot of minutes and then Che Adams obviously is still quite young but I mean they've lost as I said earlier one of the best strikers in the Premier League and haven't replaced him at all and the only signing of significance they've made is you know a, a defender from Chelsea a very young defender um, who as talented as he is they don't really sorry go ahead they have added they have added Adam Armstrong in the past couple of days from, from Blackburn so might go some way towards uh, replacing Ings. Yeah, potentially. But, um, you know, again, like he scored 49 goals in the championship for Blackburn, which is fine, you know, but that's three seasons. I mean, mm. the best championship strikers are usually racking up between 20 and 30 a season anyway. Uh, and some of them still struggle in the Premier League. Um, or they just have a dip in their numbers like Watkins, but still obviously have that impact. So, uh, yeah, it'll help, but it, I don't think it's that level of striker that they needed to replace Ings. So I'm, I'm actually quietly concerned for Southampton. I know that's quite a negative answer to a <laughs> question of who are you watching out for this season. I'm, I'm not waiting for somebody to fail, but uh, seeing the impact Ings had, and then all of a sudden that's that's gone, and and it's it's put on two young lads, an old lad, and a championship striker is uh, is quite concerning, really. Um, and then after that, uh, as we said earlier, I think Villa are going to have a great season. I think they're going to be absolutely brilliant to watch. Um, and then maybe seeing if Leeds can replicate the PR love that was constantly thrown their way after losing 6 or 7-1 at Old Trafford. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I have no issues with that. Um, but uh, after that, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's more going to be interesting to see what happens at the top rather than the bottom. I'm interested to see how Palace go. I think they're kind of becoming the team that a lot of, not necessarily football hipsters, um, are going to attach onto. But, you know, like players that or people that like to keep an, long, mm. an eye on, on younger players, um, I suppose with Michael Elise coming from Reading, they already have, um, who I think is one of the best young players in the league in uh, in Ibarichi Easy. But yeah, like, absolutely, yeah. Like, so far his CV hasn't been at all impressive is Patrick Vieira and now he's coming to a club that have had to pretty much find a new starting 11 with so many um, departures in terms of uh, players who are out of contract 
you know, a lot of older players, the likes of Scott Dan, um, a, 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 a lot of Deadwood, to, to put it that way. And they've kind of, they've they've added some really exciting young players. Um, Mark Way coming from Chelsea as well, looks like a very decent young player. Uh, Conor Gallagher um, on loan from Chelsea, who's pretty good at West Brom last year. But I think, I think there's a lot that could easily go wrong at Palace, especially with a manager who, to me, hasn't necessarily set the world alight so far. Yeah, I would agree. I think that Palace are in a very tenuous position at the moment. I mean, it'll be interesting to see Patrick Vieira and what he does. Um, but yeah, as you said, he doesn't have much of a CV and the the kind of... Well, I mean, Palace are one of those teams that have had such an ageing squad for, for so long now. It was always going to come to this. And, and the fact that they're losing so many players and changing managers in the same season puts some, you know, kind of teetering on the edge, especially... When it's you know when this season is going to be extremely competitive at the at the bottom, like I said, um, if I was a Palace fan right now, I would be slightly slightly worried about the upcoming season. Yeah, they must be having PTSD really because Vieira's CV, you know, there are parallels with De Boer that can't be ignored, and <laughs> we know how that went for Palace, um, and even Zaha kind of looks like he's you know sort of losing interest in being their main go-to guy and, and and then you look again similar to actually Southampton you look at their, their striking options and you know there's nobody that would really blow you away really in Benteke and in fairness Ayo has been better than I expected for them but again he's um he's he's kicking on a bit now um so it'll be interesting to see how they manage that um and I'd be very concerned with the fact that they brought in Vieira I think nothing that he did at New York City yeah. which he had a very strong squad with um the city group version of of uh, MLS and then in France as well he had a, quite a young talented squad there and again really underwhelmed um, so to rock up a palace after the, those two failures it, you know like I said before it, it is quite similar to the type of stuff that was happening Frank De Boer um, and to go from you know somebody so safe and reliable like Hodgson to the complete opposite in a wild card is, is for me it's, it's too much of a swing for a club like Palace for for players that Palace have to suddenly, you know, they're not just going to switch it on because somebody like Patrick Vieira walks through the door when they couldn't do it for De Boer. Um, um, and, you know, I, I need to wash my mouth out after saying this because even somebody like Allardyce would be a, a safer hand for, <laughs> for, for those type of players. You know, at least you know how he would set up um, and then maybe try and hit teams on the break with the pace that they do have up front. But, you know, with Vieira, like even in pre-season, he, he hasn't really kind of come up with a formation. I, I was following one of their games online and the comments on Twitter weren't blowing me away from Palace supporters who know a lot more about the team than I do. So um, I would be quite concerned for them as well, for sure. And just to finish off, one team, um, I suppose, who will have ambitions of knocking on the top four, who we haven't mentioned at all yet, is Arsenal. Um Hard to know what is going on exactly there. Um, obviously, they added Ben White for a fairly substantial fee from Brighton, um, over fifty million pounds, I think, in the end. But are you expecting to see better out of Arsenal this year? Again, you know, another team that hasn't gone through a whole pile of change this summer. But um, you know, if they do get things right under Arteta, they do have a lot of talent there with the likes of Pepe, who seemed to improve a little bit last year, and obviously Bukayo Saka is probably one of the best young players in the in the league and you know players that are probably 
going to be a year into their spell there, the likes of Party, who, you know, didn't necessarily go well from the season, but you know, the likes of himself and Gabriel now could could have uh, a good chances of uh, bringing Arsenal forward under Arteta. I was actually I was watching uh, a preseason game between Spurs and Arsenal last week, and um, it was a weird one because normally I wouldn't be so up for rivals playing preseason friendlies against each other because there's a lot of potential for for injury. But um, uh, watching Arsenal, they they looked quite tepid in in their approach, and you know you're looking at Arteta now, and you want to be in that season where you've got a settled team, you know what you're doing, you know what your plan is. But from what I could see, obviously in that one match and one match alone, I don't watch many Arsenal matches as a Spurs fan, but um, they they just looked a bit, uh, you know, a bit apprehensive in, in what they were trying to do. And Spurs, who were a, a team in transition um, with a lot of players that, that are still learning under a new system, under a new manager, kind of, you know, not random off the park, but they looked a lot better and a lot fitter than than Arteta's team. So I would be I would be tenuous to say that that Arsenal aren't going to have a brilliant season. I I still don't I'm still not convinced by Arteta. I don't think he's a particularly good manager, um, and I don't think he's done much to to prove otherwise. But yeah, I haven't seen much from Arsenal to to suggest that they're going to do do much to get into the top four, let alone the top six at this point. Yeah, my body's totally ready for Arteta failing miserably, to be honest. Uh, can't stand the guy. <laughs> the entire narrative around him has been that he, you know, filled Pep's water bottle for three or four years, and that's why he's a good manager. Um, you know, uh, did well in the FA Cup in his first season, obviously, but, you know, to be handed a player like Thomas Partey, which was perfect for that Arsenal system, and to get nothing out of him, you know, for me is still one of the biggest managerial failures of last season. Um, and now they've gotten one of the potentially best defensive midfielders again in Europe in, in Lekonga. And I again, I, I'm i not even sure that's what they needed. Um, I think they need a kind of more dynamic number nine to to probably be Aubameyang's long-term replacement. Uh, I actually think defensively they're okay. So signing Ben White, who, who was actually, I thought, better as a right-back for Brighton than a centre-back. Um for that type of money again, you know, obviously they did lose David Luiz, all right, but uh, it, it just, I'm struggling to kind of figure out what they're trying to do or how they're trying to set up, you know. I could understand other signings, you know, like the few that United made, the ones that the Spurs have made, but uh, with Arsenal, I have no idea of how they'll even try and set up next season. It looks like they want Smith Rowe now to be, you know, the prominent kind of playmaker as, as their number 10, um, which surprised me a bit. I would have taken the Villa cash, to be honest, when it came along, um, because I, I don't think, you know, they really need a number 10 if, if they can get the best out of Saka as a winger or, or a wing back. I think he, he provides so much crea- creativity for them. Um, so I'm, I'm really confused about what we're going to see with Arsenal. And I did watch the performance against Spurs and it was fairly underwhelming, as, as Connor said. Again, they looked bit jaded a bit you know disorganized again it's pre-season but it's your last pre-season game against a north london rival a week before the season's going to kick off um i kind of expected them to try and produce a kind of an energetic performance like you know liverpool did uh, yesterday like united did on saturday and 
it was all very jaded. So I've no idea what we're going to get from Arsenal this season, but I don't see them remotely threatening top four at all. First, I thought you cheeky bollocks to be great. Excuse me, this is live. We're joined by Rory Barlow from the La Liga Lowdown podcast to talk Messi and the utter madness that has occurred in La Liga over the past few weeks that has seen him leave due to the financial black hole first Barcelona find themselves in. Barcelona and his Freudian sleep there maybe. Um, thanks for coming on Rory, hope you're well. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely I'm fantastic with the, as we were just discussing, the aside of the recent events that have occurred which we're here to discuss. Um. I suppose we kind of said it there before we started. It's been trickling away for a little while now, even back to last summer when it looked like Messi wanted out due to his um, displeasure with the the president and the football situation. And over the course of the season, that kind of seemed to to be behind him and and the club and Messi and back on good terms. Um, but this summer, the massive financial issues that um, that Barcelona face have come to light, um, and has basically ended up with Messi having to leave on a free. They can't afford to keep him, um, and after twenty one years, he's had to he's had to move on to pastures. New Rory, can you tell us kind of maybe a little bit of background of how things have gotten to this stage with Barcelona? I mean, how how are they in such a in a bad position? Sure, of course. I think to to really look into where the genesis of this happens, it's about a decade ago when when Juan Laporta, who is obviously the man who has sealed Messi's exit this time round left power and Sandro Rossi came in. He he came into arguably one of the best club sites we've ever seen and one of the best situations. There was there was players coming through the academy. This was right on the cusp of Tiago Alcantara, who eventually ended up leaving and that was sort of symptomatic of of Barcelona's struggles to to balance having an all star team and balance the academy coming through. And then there's a Neymar case. Neymar comes, he arrives, they overpay for him and hide some of the fees. It starts the sort of culture of hiding or perhaps not being as transparent as Barcelona should have been over the recent years. And he arrives, at, instead of going to Real Madrid, to Barcelona. Then Bartomeu gets gets elected in 2015. Sandro Rosé is in prison at this point for for the Neymar case and for various dealings with Nike and in Brazil. And so we're starting to see Barcelona's management and the the people at the top really struggling to cope with the, the pressure of the job and also lacking a real plan. I think the Galactical model at Real Madrid has been praised and criticised at various points, but they, they begin to move towards that sort of idea and I have it on pretty good authority that some of the signings made after Bartomeu took power, such as Felipe Coutinho and such as Antoine Griezmann, perhaps weren't entirely motivated by football. And once you start going down that road, you're you're in huge trouble. You're in you're in a big big hole. And so there's this culture of mismanagement, this culture of hiding things, kicking the can down the road and not planning for the future. And that leads to those three massive fees for Griezmann, Dembélé and Coutinho. And from that point on, Barcelona were always spiralling towards uh, an inevitable point where they would have to change their culture, where they'd have to sort of cut back and 
really rein in the wages because they have an aging side to go with that. The, the products from the academy, Alba, Busquets, Messi, Piquet, all these players are on huge wages as well. And that all culminates to Bartomeu being removed by a vote of no confidence from the fans. There's many reasons for that. One of them is the, the ailing fortunes of the team, which are are a product of, of those dealings. And then Juan Laporta comes in. Eventually, it should be said that after six months, the elections finally sort of reach their culmination. Laporta comes in. And we, we reached this summer in a, a dire financial situation, part of the reason that Bartomeu was removed. And Barcelona thought that they could do this. I think Leo Messi thought that this was going to happen. I think Barcelona fans also believed that Leo Messi could be signed again and that there was a way out wherever that involved selling players and perhaps the lack of offers is a, a reason that we are here speaking about this. But that there was a general consensus that they would find a way somehow and they could kick the can down the road a little bit further so that they could even out their wage bill a little bit more. But as it transpired, and as you said, and sorry for rambling on, this is a, a long and sort of arduous topic in the sense that there's so many avenues and contributing factors. But we are here today and Leo Messi is no longer a Barcelona player because partly because of the La Liga rulings on, on the sort of wage caps which aren't present in some other leagues, but mostly because of Barcelona's dire financial mismanagement. I mean, some of the, the statistics um, talking about the financial situation that their wages make up 110% of, of their income and even moving on from Messi, um, they're still above the, the threshold that they need to abide by, according to La Liga. Um, you mentioned kind of kicking the can down the road over the course of the past few years, but even still... Up until recently, it still felt like something was going to happen, like to be some sort of an agreement and, um, I suppose, financial um, trickery could be a play to a certain extent. And, and they'd eventually kind of cook the books, whether it's selling on players or mm-hmm. uh, find some sort of a way to get messy. And it kind of seemed to happen, obviously it was trickling away, but it seemed to happen overnight where eventually got to a stage where kind of Barcelona kind of admitted to themselves and just gave up that, this is it, we can't keep him anymore. And it's obviously um, moved on to the stage now where Messi has had to leave and he already has PSG lined up. Yeah, of course. I think that that's the traumatic part of this for certainly the Barcelona fan base and for many that follow La Liga is that, as I, as I was saying, Messi thought this could be done. And on Thursday, he flew into Barcelona from Ibiza to, to sign a new contract. Juan Laporta clearly had other ideas or whether he was strong-armed into this by others. That's that's a point of contention. I think that's the real nitty-gritty of this, this whole issue is because La Liga's wage cap limits were obviously problematic for Barcelona. You mentioned 95% of the wage bill without Messi. It's meant to be down at 70%, which is obviously a significant difference. But La Liga had come up with... Uh, sort of solution for this. Javier Tebas, the head of the league, had presented the La Liga clubs with, a, I think it's 2.7 billion deal to essentially bail them out of this financial crisis that Spanish clubs are, are facing at the moment. And the caveat with that is that Barcelona and Real Madrid would have been much more closely tied with La Liga and it would have meant a percentage of La Liga's earnings going to 
to the to CVC, who are the company behind this deal. And so the choice in or the way it's certainly been presented is that it was between the Super League or Leo Messi. And Juan Laporta in this case seems like he wasn't committed to to signing off on that and choosing Messi ahead of ahead of the Super League. And you can argue about whether mortgaging the earnings of the club for the next 30, 40 years is the right thing to do or not, but it's it doesn't paint Laporta in a good light. And I think many fans will mm. struggle to assimilate that. It sounds like Messi did try to do everything he can in terms of um, his salary. I mean, the, the, some of the reaction on Twitter over the past couple of days, you know, with people suggesting, you know, you know like he's, he's a, obviously very well off. Like, why doesn't he play for free? Um, even though it kind of turns out that, Spanish employment laws uh, prevent that from happening. But, you know, he could play for minimum wage or he could play for, um, you know, next to nothing. But, like, uh, I'm of the t- mm-hmm. of thought that, you know, like, why should he be rewarding Barcelona for, for their ineptitude in, in, in running the club by by refusing a, a salary? And, I mean, it turns out that it's not possible, but it did seem like a, a pretty uh, strange notion to begin with. Yeah, completely. I think... If you can find me another sort of avenue of life where the highest paid player or the highest paid employee of any business is then going to stay on and work for free at the company after after 21 years, yeah, fair enough. That's a lot of time to spend somewhere and Leo Messi has done very well out of Barcelona, but Barcelona have equally done just as well out of him. And I think there's some financial figures even coming out that Barca are set to lose about 144 million euros in brand value just from Messi's departure, which which is even more than his salary would have been. And like you say, he try he he offered to cut his wages by about 50 percent. Is is the reported thing? And Leo Messi said in his press conference that he did everything to make this happen. Whether that's a pointed comment towards Juan Laporta, who was sitting in the front row, he obviously didn't divulge anything to. Uh, what's the words to that pointed the finger too much because I mean this is a man who's very respectful and even last year with the Bodo facts and uh, the whole drama about him wanting to leave all of that came out and was leaked but Leo Messi maintained a pretty high level of respect for the club and tried to keep this quiet until his only option was to to go public with it. Rory, we saw his now former teammates uh, play quite well, actually, a few days ago against Juventus. What impact, though, do you think that'll have long-term on them losing Messi and also their relationship with the fans? Because obviously players like Dembele, Coutinho are still in the squad, Griezmann, um, and also the kind of older players like uh, Piquet and Busquets and the responsibility on them to almost keep the flag flying. Not to mention Sergio Aguero throwing himself down the stairs a few times um, <laughs> to uh, avoid having to play for Barcelona for a few months. I imagine playing with Messi was the main reason he moved there. So um, how do you see them going this season without Messi? I think that first initial two, three weeks could be it could be interesting because, I mean, Barcelona obviously have spent this entire preseason without Messi. They've been playing without him. And there has been an argument over the last few years that Messi does throw, throw others into the shade. And Antoine Griezmann is a the prime example of this. He's a left-footed player who likes playing in the space in front of the defence, in a hole between the midfield, 
and and he will have the opportunity to take a lot more protagonism on. There's others like um, Coutinho as well. He can definitely benefit from this in a sense. But overall, Barcelona are going to lose a, an awful lot. They they're losing their leading assist maker, leading goal scorer, dribbler, shot maker. Ev- ev- all of the good attacking stats Leo Messi leads. Apart from maybe passes, you might get Pedri or Busquets in there. But Leo Messi was the player that kept them in the title race last season. He his run of form absolutely fired them back to the to the top of the table or near enough. And so that first month will be interesting. I think the emotional blow of this is what's going to hurt hurt Barcelona most. For me, I actually do think that they can construct a team that's capable of challenging for this league by the end of the season. Wherever they can get through those six months and still be in it this year, I'm not quite sure because they won't have the the boost that Messi will provide. But yeah, this is a player who's essentially covered up the holes of the team for for a good five, ten years now, ever since Suarez started declining and ever since Neymar left, he's been the man who who everyone looks to. There's no other person who people give the ball to and expect something to happen with. And to replace that in people's minds is what's going to be most interesting because Antoine Griezmann sometimes got on the end of passes, sometimes made a pass, but he was never, never a player that people looked to. The same can't be... There's... There's no other player in that Barcelona side who's ever had anything like the sort of authority or the or created the belief that they can dissect a defence like Leo Messi. And so I think mentally assimilating that for Barcelona, looking up, not seeing Messi, but instead having to throw it in behind for Depay, that's what's going to hurt Barcelona most. And in terms of a league challenge, can they do that? I'm I'm not convinced this year. I think it's... It's a season of rebuilding again. Rory, we all know now that, that Barcelona are in severe financial dire straits. But in the immediate future, what is their solution to this? I mean, are they willing to ship out their younger players? Or, you know, what what are they going to try to do now in the next couple of weeks in order to make sure that players like Memphis and, and, and Aguero can, can be on the books? I think most people are on the market. There's no sacred cows, so to speak, that will be will be spared if a good offer comes in. The possible exceptions to that, I think, are Ansu Fati, Pedri, Frankie de Jong. I think if a really good offer came in, Marc-Andre Stegen would also depart. But I think they want to build around the youth and build around that sort of core that I described there. But they don't really have control over their own destiny. I think it's been said by Sid Lowe and many other experts on Spanish football. The worst thing about this for Barcelona is that everyone knows they're broke. And so there's no position of negotiation. You can't say, well, no, we want this because otherwise so-and-so team will, will take on these wages or so or we can support this player being on the bench for another season. That doesn't exist for Barcelona. They, they are aware of their sort of mortality, so so keenly aware of their mortality that they they have to accept these offers. And so whatever offer comes in, I think it'll be considered, it'll be studied, and the alternatives will look or will be looked at. For me, Pedri is is the key. He's the cornerstone answer if he's available. I think Eric Garcia, although 
he's a he's a shrewd signing. He he will be another cornerstone that Barcelona will look to go to build upon. In the last couple of weeks of the market, anything could happen really because I think if a good offer comes in for any of those others, they it will be accepted and and there's no real sense that reinforcements can come in because like you say, there's still another twenty five percent of the wage bill to be reduced to to register Depay to register Aguero. So you're probably looking at Coutinho, Griezmann and Dembele then as the, the top of the list in terms of uh, possible departures. Certainly, certainly. And I think it's it's a very pl- problematic market as well for Barcelona because no other club really wants to take on these wages. I think Antoine Griezmann is actually the most saleable asset of the, of the three, but he's pretty steadfast about either wanting to stay in Spain I don't think he'd go to Real Madrid. Do Atleti want him back? Well, not really. There was talk of a of an exchange with Saul earlier in the season, but that doesn't entirely solve things either. And perhaps you're better off keeping Griezmann at that point as perhaps the the main attacking threat of your team. Dembélé equally an issue. The fact that he got injured in the Euros really hurt Barcelona because I think he was one of the players that they could easily have held on to and played. He could have been a regular as part of the team this season because he actually showed some consistency last year and he, he stayed injury-free for the longest time that he has as a Barcelona player. But his injury has completely thrown that in the air and who knows whether we'll, we'll ever see him put together a consistent run of form. So yeah, those three are definitely the prime candidates. But as I say, anyone of, of any sort of value... I think will be considered Jordi Alba, Sergio Busquets, Gerard Piquet, all of those people are on really high wages, which perhaps prevents them from from leaving. But even the likes of Serginho Dest, I think it was it would certainly be considered if someone to, were to offer thirty to forty million for him. You mentioned um Pedri as a as a possible cornerstone going forward. I mean he's still only eighteen years of age. He's coming off a uh, was it a 73-75 game campaign after the Euros um, and the Olympics? Um, and then there was reports this week that he's pretty much going to go straight back into camp with Barcelona. So, I mean, he's he's going to be on a pretty hectic schedule f- this year and for the next couple of years. So, I mean, if they do want to build around him, I think they'll have to take a, a little bit better care of him than, uh, than necessarily playing 60, 70 games a year. Certainly, I, I'm... I think everyone wholeheartedly agrees on this, apart from perhaps Ronald Koeman. Um, as much as as much as Petri's a key part of this side, he he does need a break, and like you say, he's come off a season which is just completely bonkers. The fact that he's played that many games in that amount of time, because he wasn't even starting at the end of last season, that should be should be taken into account. Like he came in in some of those games, but he wasn't a key part of the team at the start of the year. So Ronald Koeman, he's in a tricky situation because he's going to, he's fighting for his job. He's not going to be given a free pass this year. I think people, even with Messi's departure, and it's hard to measure success now for him, but people will expect him to improve this team. And for me, I think he will put himself, I think if we can, Judged by Ronald Koeman's past, he will put himself before Petri's safety because Ronald Koeman's not going to be there beyond the next year or two, even if Petri is. And so he will need rest. Whether Koeman 
sees enough of a drop off in his performance to think that maybe yeah I should give him that rest rather than just running him into the ground and hoping that he can inspire Barcelona to some results. I I, I don't know, but certainly Pedri for me is Barcelona's largest upcoming talent and should be treated with with the care that deserves. I, I just don't think Barcelona though are in a position to afford to be able to to let him rest and to and to really take care of him in the way that they probably should for the future. Rory, how does La Liga play this now? They've just lost their most marketable asset, um, which could impact the league financially, certainly. But, you know, unless you watch La Liga TV every week, there's actually a lot that goes uh, unseen by people because of the dominance that... Messi and the big two have, you know, Diego Aspas at Celta Vigo single-handedly keeping up, mm. keeping them up every year. Uh, <laughs> Real Sociedad creating kind of almost a, a mini Borussia Dortmund, the success of um, <clears throat> Sevilla under Lopetegui and Monkey and, and what they're building. Is this now an opportunity for the league to kind of show that there is life after Messi, Ronaldo, after Madrid and Barcelona? Certainly. And I think Javi Tebas is well aware of that, the the leader of La Liga, the president. There there was an interesting point I did see today on, on Twitter, and I'll have to apologize to whoever it is because I've completely forgotten who it was. But they were pointing out that Javier Debas had the chance to promote this league and make the appeal more widespread than just Barcelona and Madrid while the league was at its peak. And having not done that, now he's trying to play catch up distribute the TV rights a little more evenly and and yeah to see that those stories of Sevilla to see the stories of Real Sociedad Betis these are all huge clubs that really do have a lot of value and entertainment to give to the league there's no doubt that I think we're in a period of sort of or, or a lull in the league in the sense because they do they have lost a lot of star quality there's no no denying that I think it will come back even stronger though. Spain has always, La Liga has always been based on its good youth systems and the fact that they've been consistently able to replace the talent. They do need a few, a year or two at least of consolidation to be able to, I think, start competing. Not that they've stopped because I mean Villarreal won, won the Europa League last year, but to start competing on a Champions League level, I do think they'll need a couple years to sanitize their finances and to really put in place a plan because Real Madrid and Barcelona have been living off off their success of the 2010s and trying to hold on to that. The other clubs, to be fair to them, have been building around, around them and sort of really investing more wisely because I think in the early 2010s and even beyond that, many of these clubs were poorly managed financially and really struggled to sort of keep up but the imbalance wasn't so great between both them and the classical teams and also the Premier League now that the Premier League has such an advantage I do think they're going to have to look to Liga and look to maybe perhaps other Bundesliga sites and see how they're managing themselves how they've struck the balance between youth and signings and try and try and improve but there's there, there is a lot to offer in La Liga, and you're asking the wrong person because I obviously love La Liga. I watch it all the time. I do watch <laughs> La Liga TV every weekend, but 
certainly I think there's plenty of storylines to follow. There's two or three huge derbies and Spain as a country has a lot to sell in the sense that each region is very different. Each club is very integrated and rooted in that region and their traditions. And so I'd be happy if perhaps in a sense that Real Madrid and Barcelona maybe lose a little bit of shine. But if people maybe paid attention to the others, because I think going forward, that's far more sustainable for the league and and more interesting as well if those teams get better around Barca and Real. Rory, what clubs do you specifically think are going to have an interesting season coming up in La Liga? Because me personally, I'm quite excited to see a team like Real Betis, you know, as they're just coming back into Europe and see how, how they're doing. Um, especially with their massive rivalry with Sevilla, they're starting to kind of equal them slightly. Um, so yeah, what what teams would you be looking forward to most? Betis are a fun one. I I actually have a very good friend who who is a um I think he was head of the Scottish uh, Peña Betica um for a while, and so he was the head of the supporters club in Scotland. And I was talking to him about about the sort of rivalry between Sevilla and Betis, and he was saying Betis haven't actually been that bad in the last sort of 10, 15 years, but Sevilla's rivalry means they, or Sevilla's success, sorry, just means they can't enjoy the seasons properly. I think Sevilla, the one season where they maybe were bound to finish outside the European places, they were going to finish seventh. They ended up winning the Europa League on penalties. And he was just like, we, we can't, can't buy any luck here because Sevilla just keep winning, even despite our successes. Betis finished above them that season. But Sevilla ended up in the Champions League. So I, th- I think Betis are an interesting one. They've got uh, Manuel Pellegrini, who's obviously a fantastic manager, very experienced. For me, the real interesting one to watch is Marcelino at Athletic. They have a lack of a goal scorer, but outside of that, they have a competitive team. They're physical. They are going to absolutely give people the run around. And I think we saw that last year. They beat Barcelona in the Super Cup final. They got to two Copa del Rey finals in successive years and Julie got beaten in both of them. But that was partly due to a lack of fitness, I think, and give Marcelino a preseason. He's pretty much, I mean, he's had had downturns, but he's pretty much undefeated in the sense that he's always managed to take these clubs. If we look at Villarreal, Valencia, Sevilla, he's always had success with them, whether that be in Europe or in the league. And so I think he'll be really, really interesting to watch. Another one, and anyone who watched Sweden at the Euros will will probably be a fan of Alexander Isak, but Real Sociedad, they are the model club, as as you mentioned. They're a bit like Dortmund in a sense, that they have, have an idea of exactly what they're about. Their first team is filled with about six, seven, eight products from the youth team. Some of them very, very good. Some of them will be featuring in the Spain side in the coming years, I think. And and they have plenty of magic about them and plenty to watch. I think they they got beating off Man United during last season's Europa League, but there's there's so much more to come from them. And if they can continue to improve, if they can keep that sort of young core together, they could really even get into the Champions League with a, a really good season. Rory, in terms of the title race, I suppose Atletico Madrid obviously coming off um winning the league last year and obviously Barcelona and Real are having to 
kind of live within their means. Um, and I, th- I think I saw reports this week that Madrid are even in the in the green in some aspects of their finances, which is probably unusual to them. And um, that Atletico have outspent them this year or this summer in the transfer market. How do you see Atletico going? I mean, they have a very settled side now. They have a couple of young players coming through and obviously loads of experience with the likes of Suarez. But um, it, it does seem like a fantastic opportunity to follow up on last year's win and, and, and retain their title. Yeah, everything everything is coming up for Atleti. I don't think they can quite believe their luck because as good as Atleti were this season and I trumpeted their sort of first half of the season and uh, insane. It was the solidity that they showed and the efficacy that they showed in that first spell of the season right up to sort of the end of January was outstanding. But the three months that they had thereafter were enough to lose any league title in Europe. And had Real Madrid and Barcelona been the Real Madrid and Barcelona from any other sort of time in recent years, they probably would have caught them and and they did catch up to them. They just didn't quite get over the line. And so they had a little bit of luck in that sense. They they found two giants who are sort of falling very slowly, crashing to the ground at the minute. And that's benefited them last year. And this year, I mean, what have Real Madrid and Barcelona really done to, to say that they can wrestle the title away from Atleti? I, I can't see anything because Real Madrid have lost their starting two defenders. They've got Gareth Bale back. Don't know how much that means <laughs> to anyone at this point. It could be good. It could be could mean nothing. They do have Eden Hazard and maybe he stays fit, but it's by far, far from a guarantee. And then Barcelona, we've just discussed the chaos that they're they're facing. Meanwhile, Atleti have another year where, and I do think Simeone has rebuilt, rebuilt this side. They went through a year, not not the previous season, obviously, where they won the league, but the previous year to that, they, they certainly weren't going for the title and they looked a long way off it and points-wise they were too. But they, they showed a change of direction that was sufficient enough, I think, for Simeone to really find a new sort of niche to, to live in and a, a way of playing, which... Simeone with Suarez has now really capitalised on because before that they had Morata and he really, really struggled in front of goals. Anyone who's ever watched Alvaro Morata play ever, um, he misses the easy ones and scores the hard ones. But they've added Rodrigo de Paul to that sort of system that's really working. And de Paul, I think, could be a massive signing for them. I think it's the, the best signing of the of the summer for La Liga clubs because... He's. I don't know if any of you watched the Copa America, but the way that he managed to do pretty much all the running for Leo Messi, by the way, but also slot balls through. He, um, what's the word? Aguantar in Spanish, where you you sort of um suffer and hold on to the ball when it seems like you shouldn't, but then you manage to give it away to a teammate. And he he managed to maintain possession for Argentina. He did it all. He was box to box. He. He set things up, he defended well, he committed tactical fouls. He's a perfect Simeone player. And so if you throw that into the mix, I think Atleti are clear favourites. But if there's one thing that Simeone's taught us, it's that he's never going to do anything comfortably. Atleti will never win a title with Simeone and sort of go straight home without any bumps <laughs> in the road. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be 
uh, an act of suffering from them again. So it'll certainly be entertaining, but they they definitely have to be favourites for me. Rory, back to Barcelona and Messi quickly. I mean, it's obviously reverberated around the football world. I mean, seeing images of him in a PSG shirt is obviously going to be very strange. I imagine after a couple of games, we will get used to it very quickly, but it just goes to show, I mean, uh, you know, there is no kind of, not necessarily loyalty in football, but, you know, it, it can happen to anyone that uh, relationships can get strained and players can come move on regardless of, of who they are or how good they are. But, like, how could you sum up how much of a loss Barcelona or Messi is to, to Spanish football after, after, I mean, like, he's been so good for so long. Like, it's hard to describe. It's hard to kind of fathom how good he has been year in, year out for that league and that team. And just to see it just to see it end in the way it has is, it must feel like such a shame for, for Spanish football yeah certainly and I think better better people than me will will try to sum this up and not succeed but here we'll, we'll give it a go <laughs> Leo Messi I, I talked about Barcelona having belief with Leo Messi in the side and he was the player that you could give the ball to against anyone in any situation as in any game no matter how how desperate it seemed how desolate it was and you had a hope you had the sort of thought in your mind well if anyone could do it then Messi can do it and the the impact of that I think not only on Barcelona but on other teams was it's an you can't really quantify it it's it's so ingrained into into the game, and I think we'll see the sort of loss of that really impact Barcelona initially. For La Liga as a wider sort of product, as a wider league, I mean Alberto Moreno pretty well summed it up on the radio last night. I mean, I'm not looking forward to, or I'm absolutely fine with him leaving in the sense that I don't have to play against him anymore because I, yes, I mean he was. I never got close to him, basically, is what he said. But the league, it does lose something. And there's there's part of him that I think was reticent or sort of found a, a melancholy in this for, for the league as a whole because Leo Messi was sort of the poster boy for La Liga for so long. But he was also the most thrilling watch on two feet for about 20 years. And that's in La Liga for about, what, 15, 16 years. And that's inquantifiable to lose that, to not be able to tune in and see someone who can who can light up any single moment of a game. There's there's certainly a, a spark that is missing. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's really hard to sort of put it into words just how, how much of a loss will be. And I think we'll be feeling it for, for so long to come without realising it and only in sort of a couple of years time will we truly be able to appreciate it even though even though we're all at Messi's feet sort of saying how good he is and saying he's he's one of the greatest players ever perhaps the greatest and saying all these things he does it's only in his absence that we'll know just how much he did yeah i don't think uh, spanish football will be the same again after we've we've all pretty much grown up watching leo messi play for barcelona week in week out so um a huge loss to spanish football um rory thanks very much for coming on this evening 
No, it was an absolute pleasure. And anytime, boys, and keep up the good work. I'm loving the podcast. So we leave it there, so okey doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>